Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Glad to see you all. It's a new year, and a few of you have picked new spots in the chapel, switching it up a little bit. This day, we're going to be doing chapter 10 of Luke, but a few housekeeping things just to make sure you are aware. This spring, we have a new bookmark with schedule. They are available at both doors, the rear door and the side door, the little tables with the bookmarks on them. So please pick one up. Or if you've got a friend or a neighbor or someone who wasn't here today and you want to pass one off to them, that would be great. Or if you've got a friend you want to invite to come, then please take however many you'd like so that you can put it in your, book, in your Bible and know where we are each day. Um, you will note that we have a few, just a couple Wednesdays, where we will not meet. Um, the first Wednesday we will not meet is March 14th, and that is spring break. And then it's only two weeks later, on March 28th, we will not meet. That is Holy Week, and so Holy Wednesday. And so there are lots of services and other things you can do that week. And so we're going to take both of those weeks off. And the last meeting we have is the first Wednesday of May, and that will get us all the way through the book of Luke. So do grab your bookmarks so that you don't show up sadly by yourself one Wednesday. Also... We've got new guides for adult formation here at the church this spring. And so if you are interested in doing, even if it's just for Sunday school, but if you're interested in just seeing what else is around, or if perhaps you know somebody who can't come to this study but wants to do some study, then these little pamphlets are on the tables, the flat surfaces all around the church, and they give just a little bit of detail on all of the midweek classes, all right? So it's not really specific for Sunday, although there is a little note about Sunday on the back, but these are all the things happening during the week for adults. And so do grab one of these and give it to a friend, or if you want another study during the week, there's lots of good information in here. Now let's open up our study this morning with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your presence with us this morning as we start a new semester and we go into the second half of the Gospel of Luke. Empty us that we have space inside for your spirit to fill. Guide us with the wisdom to help discern how it is you have acted in the past so we can act for your kingdom in the future. Today we hold up especially our friends who need our prayers. Today we pray for Effie McCullough, for Jean Marie Clossy, for Bob Wilbur, for Jack, for all those in recovery, and for strength and healing for those in our community who need your touch. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, I broke down into three different sections. So if you can't see quite in the back, Chapter 10 is going to be, first section is about the 70, them going and them coming back. The second section, the Good Samaritan, a new story to all of you, I'm sure. And then Martha and Mary, again, a new story to all of you, I'm sure. So we've got lots of good stories here. I think you remember me telling you at one point that Luke is the storyteller, right? If there is a story that you love from the Gospels, I bet four out of five of those are from Luke. Luke just weaves a great story. And even when those stories are in the other Gospels, typically the version in Luke is just better. And so that's the one we typically read or hear read to us. 
So Luke in chapter 10 is really getting into the action of Jesus's ministry. A little review, up through chapter 9, Jesus has sort of been getting rolling, right? Luke establishes a couple chapters of Jesus's incarnation, right? What was going on in the world prior to Jesus's birth. Then we've got a little bit of Jesus after birth, right? His baptism, his presentation, 12 years old in the temple, and then we get to his baptism, which really kicks off his public ministry. But then there are a few chapters where Jesus sort of stays local, so to speak. He stays local, he does some miraculous things, and he begins to gather followers. What we see in chapter 9 is that there really is an intentional shift from kind of the homegrown rabbi to more the global rabbi, the guy who's going to start getting more attention from everybody, and that attention is not going to be good most of the time. And Jesus owns it. And in chapter 9, there is this pivot and this turn toward what a lot of times scholars or theologians will say, toward Jerusalem. And what that really means is that Jesus has owned and is living into the fact that his story is not going to end well, right? Well, we can argue it ends really well, but there will be a moment when it is not easy. And he's owned that, and he kind of wears that forward, and chapter 10 is where that really hits the ground. In chapter 9, when that becomes apparent, right, and Jesus owns the fact that what he's about to do is not going to be easy, but it is what he should do. Then chapter 10 is where that sense of urgency manifests itself. And that's what we see really with the 70, is that there is now a sense of urgency. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is the last line of chapter 9. And that leads us right into chapter 10. Jesus is not playing around anymore. And so he goes and he identifies 70 people to go out and begin to tell the story. And so that's where we will start. The whole first half, really it's more than the first half of chapter 10, is all about these 70 people. And so it's an important idea. One question we might ask is, were there literally 70 people? The answer is, eh, probably not, right? I mean, there were probably more than that. Maybe there were less than that. Not important. Luke's telling a good story. When he tells the story of Jesus calling the 70 and sending them out, he sends them out with the power of the Spirit. He is empowering them, gifting them with the Spirit to go out and sort of be Jesus, be Christ to all the people they encounter. This 70 number is important. It's not a random number. 70 could be a holy number, maybe. But what it is, is a number that we have seen before. And in the story of faith, in the salvation story, there is a point at which another great leader calls 70 people together to be blessed and to be leaders for the whole community. And that happens in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, Moses gathers 70 people together and sends those 70 people to be leaders in the community. It's a different kind of sending, but it is 70. Again, anyone reading Luke's gospel 
when he writes it, any good Jew would immediately think of Moses. That is as much Luke's point as anything else in this story. Luke wants the people to see and to understand that Jesus has taken on the mantle of their greatest guy, right? Moses really trumps David, right? David, the great king, but nobody's like Moses, right? And if Jesus can be linked to Moses, can be shown to be inheriting his mantle, then he has as much power and authority on this earth as he can. But Luke's not really done with that. That's not enough power and authority for Luke, but at least it gets people the idea of what Moses did, Jesus is doing in a new, fresh way. So I want to look at Numbers chapter 11 just so that you can hear this passage. The Lord said to Moses, if you want to follow along because you have Bibles, I just heard pages flip. And so if you carried your Bibles in here, you might as well make use of them. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Numbers is near the beginning. Sorry, I just saw someone like start flipping from the back and I thought, just in case we were unclear, it's closer to Genesis than Revelation. Okay. <laughs> Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers of them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their place there with you. I will come down and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. Did you catch that? And they shall bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not bear it all by yourself. So Moses went out and told the people, I just skipped it, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. In this story that people would have very much known, there is the idea that Moses embodied God's spirit in a very tangible way. But Moses could not do what needed done by himself. And so God had Moses identify some people, 70. And God took what was special about Moses and sprinkled that fairy dust all over these other 70. So they could also embody God's spirit to the people. In the very similar way, what is happening here is Jesus is bringing these 70 together and sprinkling his spirit on them so they can go out and do stuff in his name like he has been doing, right? We have seen up to this point that Jesus is healing and all kinds of good things. He wants these 70 to be his team. They will go out and do the same kind of stuff that he's been doing. In other words, this is another point in the story where Luke points to there being a new exodus. Right? What did Moses do? Moses led the people out of bondage. But in that story, Moses was leading them out of physical bondage. Yes, there is an explicit spiritual 
uh, facet to what Moses did. But part of the story, or the real root of that story, is this physical shift. Jesus is doing something a bit different. There might be a physical shift, but what he's really trying to do is make that exodus into something that is spiritual. That is really hard for us to understand. And we've had 2,000 years of people thinking about it. The people here reading this story are going to kind of get it, but not really. And when they kind of get it, but not really, that's when Jesus gets to these two stories and he tries to explain what he's really looking to do. So focusing back on the evil or on the uh, 70, sorry, it is representing a new exodus. And so Jesus sends them out to fight evil, right? And he sends them out. And what does he tell them to do? When he goes into a house, when they go into a house, they say to the people in the house, peace be on this house, right? So Jesus is going out to fight evil. And he says, you start by offering peace. That is radically countercultural. How do you fight evil? Well, with a bigger evil, right? I mean, how do you fight someone with a big gun? You have a bigger gun, right? I mean, we all live in that culture. But what Jesus is doing is something different. He says, you don't fight the way the world fights. You offer something that transcends the world. And that transcendence is the peace of God. However, Jesus is not some hippie. And so Jesus says, you offer peace, but what you're really doing is articulating the way of God. You are pointing toward the way God is going. That means there is an invitation after that peace, right? Peace be with you. Here's what God's doing, and we want you to go with us. But if you're not going to go with us, then there is the warning, right? So we have peace, invitation, and then warning. The warning is not meant to be somehow disciplinary or harsh. What it's meant to be is realistic, right? If this is God's truth, then we want you to come with us. But if you choose not to come, then know that you are going to now be living in a different direction of God. You'll be living apart from God. And living apart from God is problematic in lots of ways. And so we're just being honest, right? And how many of you have ever experienced that kind of message from someone else? I love, it's like a sick thing, but I love it when someone knocks on the door and it's someone proselytizing. That delights me because I go out, you know, other people might hide behind the sofa and be like, we're not here. Um, but I love it because I go to the door and I'm like, hello, you know? And what do you have? Show me, what does the Bible say? Tell me, you know, I love that because then I can get into a debate and it's, it, it's mean, but that's okay. Um, so here's, here's a little story that came to my head. So, I have to admit to you that I, I went to see the Book of Mormon and thought it was great. And I don't know if any of you, so that's my confession to you, right? Um, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but yes, okay, some hands went up, yes. I actually made this, stu uh, it was not stupid, but it felt dumb at the time. 
decision, we went, um, there was a member of my former parish who worked for the theater that hosted all of the traveling Broadway shows. And she said, hey, I can get tickets, right? Ahead of time, make sure we get the day we want. Great. And so there were like 80 of us that all bought tickets in this block. And it wasn't until I was showing up that I realized I was going to be sitting in the middle of 80 of my parishioners laughing really hard, <laughs> right? And so I had to just say, here's the deal, right? I'm going to laugh and no judgment, okay? Um, but watching that, here, the story of it is, as I was walking up to the theater, there were people outside waiting to greet those going to the theater. And I thought for a minute, and I even said out loud, oh my gosh, look, they even have fake Mormons out here to greet us. <laughs> and it took me like 30 seconds before I realized, oh no, these are very real Mormons who are trying to convince us not to see the show. And so I stopped, of course, and started talking with them, right? Because they were saying, you know, no, this is not it. This is not really what it is. And they were trying to hand out um, their scripture and that sort of stuff. And so I stopped and I said, well, tell me a little bit about it, right? Well, have you? And then I said, have you seen the show? And they said, no, we're not allowed to see it. And I said, oh, okay. And you know, that was, it was a little short conversation. Well, about a week later, I was in the grocery store and I, this was the funniest day because I turned one corner and there in the aisle were five nuns and I was in my collar. And they kind of looked at me and I looked at them and I was like, aren't we pretty? <laughs> and you know, then a few aisles later, I, I was in the sport drink aisle and there were four Mormon missionaries. <laughs> You know, and they're like, what, 18, 19 years old, right? And they looked nice and cleanly dressed, and they were debating, I don't know, Gatorade or something. And I walked up, and if you've seen the show, the whole beginning is sort of a, a farce on the knocking on the door, right? And it's like, hello, my name is... El okay, that's the way it starts. So I walked up, and then I went, hello. <laughs> and they all looked at me, and I kind of went, oh, that's right, you haven't seen it. Never mind. Um... Sorry, tangent. So there is a long history of going and whether you call it proselytizing or evangelizing, whatever you want to call it, this idea of trying to explain or impart, communicate whatever, a truth you hold very dear. That's really what's happening in this moment. They, they could be considered maybe the first explicit evangelists, right? Jesus has given them this truth, and then he has charged them to go out and share this truth. And what I want us to hear very clearly is that this truth is not a passive, I'm okay, you're okay kind of moment, right? Jesus sends them out with some teeth. That's something we as Episcopalians need to hear because the Episcopal Church has trended toward a, a, such a high level of inclusion for good reasons that also takes a lot of the teeth of this message away. And I think it's a balance for us to try and strike better in this church, right? Inclusive, yes. What Jesus is saying here is that everybody is invited. Everyone can get in the pool, right? There is no hurdle. There is nothing that can keep you away from God's grace. But you also have to choose God's grace. 
And if you don't choose it, then you've not chosen it. Clear, that's it. Everybody can choose. And if you don't, then you haven't. And we have to be confident enough and loving enough that God's grace is for every person. But God loves us how we are and loves us enough not to leave us how we are, right? That is a very nuanced way of being inclusive, right? Everyone can come. And yet as you are is never everything God hopes for you. And as you are, with God's help, can become more and more God-like over time. And that is really what these 70 are going out to try and do. And that's sort of the teeth that Jesus gives them. Now, believe me, it's not, it's not that draconian, right? I mean, it's pretty simple. But it's important that we understand that what Jesus is really doing here is both an invitation and a warning, right? He does not mince words, and it's important for us to hold both together. Now, after the 70 return, there is this really great human moment of Jesus, right? So the 70 go, and they go and they talk and they do stuff, and then they come back, and when they come back, they're super psyched because they've been doing stuff like Jesus, and it worked. And they tell Jesus that what they've been doing has worked and it has been so fun and it is fulfilling and it is enriching and all of these good things. And then what does Jesus do? He turns and he says, thank you, God, that this worked. Now that could go over our heads if we're just simply reading fast. But what I love about that simple moment is it's easy for us to think that Jesus could do anything that everything Jesus did just worked out, right? That is a, I think, a very common sort of default idea. Now, obviously, it didn't always work out, right? Remember, he was crucified. Now, you could also get high theology on me and say, but that was his intention, so it did work out. So maybe, but I would, I would say that Jesus's hope to the end was that that did not have to happen, that the world could have been saved in another way, and yet it did not, and so he committed all the way. If that's true, then this kind of moment makes great sense to me. Jesus did what he knew he should, but he didn't control the people's responses. And so when people responded well, he was thrilled and grateful. And that's a, that's a human Jesus that I at least can relate to, and I hope you can too, right? If we believe this story and we go and we try to act like Christ in the world and it doesn't work, then we can be disappointed. But if it works, then we are thrilled. And that's just like Jesus. There are stories after stories where Jesus does not make anyone believe, right? He does not force this on anyone. And that is a, if there is a single idea as, as a priest to you that I would want you to really grab, it's the idea that we always have a choice. Choice always. 
God does not force us to believe. And if you follow that philosophy out, if you follow that trail out, that also means God does not cause things to happen in your life. All right? God helps you, but you choose them. That's good and bad, right? If something great happens, God did not cause that great thing, but God was with you to help you make that great thing happen. That also means when a bad thing happens, God did not cause that bad thing, but God's with you in that bad thing to help turn it to good. Almost weekly, I will have a conversation with someone who has had something bad happen. A spouse has cheated, they've been diagnosed with cancer, someone has died, something bad has happened. And inevitably, someone will say, why is God doing this? Or they may take a more mature stance and say, God must be trying to teach me something, right? Which is perhaps a mature way of saying, you know, why has God done this? Both in that moment of crisis, that's okay, right? I would never correct somebody. They would say, oh, you know, your favorite friend died? Well, let me explain to you theologically what's happening here. No, you just simply, <laughs> that's okay, right? And you sit with someone, no problem. But in moments like this, where we may not be in crisis, to begin to really turn in our minds this idea that God is with us. God does not do that to us, all right? God is not a tempest or a puppet master. What God is, is love. God gives that love freely, that grace freely to anyone who wants to respond. But it's real love, and real love is not controlling. Real love is complete freedom of choice. The reciprocation we give to God in response to that love is up to us. And oftentimes people choose no. And when people choose no, Jesus says, bad things might happen. That is the warning here. And that's the kind of tension we have to hold with dignity, fidelity, kindness, love, all of the above. It's complex. But that idea, I think, once we really kind of live into it, actually makes a lot of other things make sense. They're not easy, but at least I think there is a much deeper understanding of the way God is with us in relationship, not controlling us. All right, that is the end of the first section. How am I doing? Dang. Okay, I talk too much. So, any questions or thoughts on the 70 before we shift? Yes, so the question is, if I'm putting forth this idea that God does not cause, what about scripture passages that do say that you want something, God will give it? Ask and you shall receive, right? There are plenty, pray for what you want. Two things. The first is it's always, sorry, this sounds cheap, but it's always important that whatever we take out of the Old Testament, we put through the lens of Christ, right? So people love to go find a passage in the Old Testament 
that proves the point they want to prove. It does not mean that the Old Testament is not true. But in a, in a larger sense, Jesus came to clarify truth, right? So he does not discount what the Jewish tradition has been. What he really hopes to do is clarify it. And so there are, in, in many ways, he tweaks, right? I mean, most people would think or believe Jesus wanted all the Jews. I mean, that was the point, right? He wasn't looking to start something different. He was coming to fulfill. But that fulfillment meant a lot of clarity. And over time, there were little things. I, mean, I think we've mentioned in here before that the Jewish tradition is a legal tradition and it's impressive, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly detailed, thoughtful kind of legal tradition, right? And what Jesus comes to say is that it's not that the attempt at law was wrong, but when you get too detailed, you can sort of lose the forest for the trees, so to speak, and it's just simpler. And it's human nature to want to take something simple and make it more complex. But Jesus says, no, it is really that simple. And in many ways, what Luke points to here with linking back to Moses, that's kind of what it was then, right? At that starting point at Sinai, when Moses is receiving God's word, it is pretty simple. Now, it pretty quickly becomes more complex. Same thing in Christianity, right? We've done the same thing. It's just human nature. But the desire, I think, is to make things more simple. Because that clarity was Jesus's perhaps greatest mission, anything in the Old Testament that seems to contradict the New Testament is probably not the truest understanding of the truth. I don't know if you can say truest truth, but Jesus is that clarifying lens. And so if he says something like, invite people to follow God, and if they don't warn them, that's not, bad, that's not good. If there's something in the Old Testament that says something different, I tend to say, well, Jesus has to be the, the sort of the right in this sort of situation. The other thing that I would say about the whole God causing, right, in the world, in a theological sense, now I have to get theology, if God is good, all good, we know there is evil in the world, there is bad. Where does that evil or that bad come from? Now, in a cosmic sense, the scripture tells us that there are different beings that embody good and evil, right? If we want to read into some of the stories um, of, say, you know, Satan falling from heaven and there's the battle and all that stuff, if we want to think that that is quite literal, I don't think that's wrong, but I think in many ways that is a, that is a way for a people in a particular point in time to understand how the world works. Theologically, we've gotten to a point where we don't, we shouldn't, at least, live into a dualism of good and evil. 
Because in essence, what we're saying is they're basically two gods, right? Of good and of evil. And they, are, they battle and we are the collateral damage of their battle. That's what a lot of people have believed for a long time. That actually is not a monotheistic understanding of things. It's really a dualistic way of understanding things. And again, not wrong to try to understand the world that way, but I think there is a better way of understanding that really where that bad comes from is our freedom of choice. When we choose not God, we actually bring in the bad in the world. Now, that is not what I don't want you to hear is that you make a bad choice, you get cancer. That's not what that is. But there is pain in the world, and that pain is not caused by God. It comes in in a different way, and God is here to save us from it. And so God, for me, I'll just own it, for me is all good. And it is us that open the doors for whatever bad is here. And that's just over history, right? I mean, it, it's continuous. And we, we, in essence, fight that kind of battle, trying to choose God more often in order to manifest more good in the world to counterbalance the bad. I feel like I'm going to just keep talking if I don't stop. Um, <laughs> kind of. It's not that God does not answer your prayers. Perhaps that's what I should say. Praying, maybe I'll say it this way. Prayer is one of those things that is very strange because most people don't pray, honestly, on their own. Um, they might say prayers together, but most people aren't praying or, you know, something like, you know, oh my God, that's not a prayer, right? Um, I think that functionally speaking, prayer is really for us, right? God knows us. God knows our hearts. God knows our minds. Articulating prayers does not somehow reveal something to God that he doesn't already know. However, articulating prayers helps us redirect ourselves toward God. And I think that that is the kind of answered prayer that is a more is a deeper truth than the transactional thing right god is not a cosmic vending machine right if you put the right change in with the right prayer words you get the right soda out in the answered prayer right it's not that prayer really is for us helping to turn our spirits toward him and so when we pray and we commit to the vulnerability of asking for something tough. What we're really doing is moving closer toward, I think, the reality of God. And we should, right? That is absolutely what we should do. And then we let those prayers go, right? It's not waiting around to see what happens or saying something like, I guess God answered my prayer in a different way, kind of. But I, I don't think that's the highest good of praying, I think the highest good of praying is that we have been transformed by doing so. Yes, prayer ministry. So 
what, what you're saying is the praying opens up space for God to enter, enter into you. So in other words, you're shifting toward God. And, and praying is that functional good thing for us. And if you don't pray, I encourage you to just talk, right? I think, especially for in our tradition, prayers are so poetic that we don't think we can do them, right? We, we both, on the one hand, like the poetry, and we also can't write the poetry ourselves. And so oftentimes people will pull out a prayer book to say a prayer because that's the kind of prayer they want to say. That's fine. I mean, it's why we have a prayer book, right? Use it. If you've never just perused our prayer book, there are prayers for tons of things, right? I mean, even esoteric weird things, there are prayers, and so use them. However, a prayer is just a conversation, right? God wants us in a relationship not perfect us or best us or us with hair and makeup. God wants just us. And so prayers can just be, hey God, I need some stuff, right? Or thank you for helping me have a great holiday with my family, right? Poetry is not necessary. What is necessary is that we do it. That is what's necessary. All right, I'm impaling you now. What, Joan? Lean into God. That's good. You can write that on a coffee mug. I, I agree. All right. Now we have less than 20 minutes to do two really big things. So the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is a story that appears also in Matthew and Mark. So it is a synoptic story. It is told better in Luke. Um, so I, I will not do the whole what is the story, but... I want to give you context around this maybe best-known story in all of Scripture, right? I mean, there are a handful of stories like the prodigal son and others that are very well-known. This has to be, if not the most well-known, one of the two, right? Good Samaritan has actually transferred into just secular language, too. If you want to be a good person, you're a good Samaritan, right? Everybody knows that term. And using it that way is almost certainly not understanding it. So we're going to try and understand it. Who were the Samaritans? That's where we will start. Samaritans were a branch of Judaism. All right, so if you remember, I'll say if you remember, you may have never learned, but if, if you remember, way back in the day, there were three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The 11th son was Joseph. Joseph got crossways with his brothers who sold him into slavery and he ended up in Egypt. There was a famine. Jacob and all of his sons came over and Joseph took care of them. That is how they ended up in captivity, right? Because the Pharaoh rose above Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, that was Genesis. Now we get out of Egypt with Moses. And those 12 sons of Jacob formed the 12 tribes of Israel, basically. Just go with it. And then those 12 tribes of Israel begin to form a new society in the promised land. While they're doing that, not everyone always agrees with each other. 
two sons of Joseph, right? Not sons of Jacob, two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, start to do some stuff that's a little different than what the majority of the Jews were doing in the southern part of Israel. Their different stuff started out small, but just like denominational splits, they began to grow apart. During the kingdom period of Israel, which is hundreds of years later, the southern part of Israel split from the northern part, and they became the southern and the northern kingdoms. After that happens, we get the big exile, where the Assyrians come down to the northern part and take a lot of the Jews back to Assyria, and then the Babylonians conquer Assyria, and they come down and get all the rest of the people in the southern kingdom. All right, I don't expect you to remember all this, but the context here is these two tribes that come from Joseph simply formed what you could kind of say is a different denomination of Judaism, right? Not quite that simple, but that's the basics. What is important for us to know is that Samaritans were Jews, but they weren't the Jews in charge, the Jews with power. And so in a similar way, if we are honest, we as Episcopalians here at St. Michael probably would rather spend time with some faith groups around here who aren't Christian than certain other Christian groups, right? That's really what we're doing here, is from the outside looking in, why would we want to be around people from Temple Emmanuel instead of people from First Baptist downtown, right? I have many reasons, but <laughs> that, that is really what we are getting at in this story, is the Samaritans truly are quite close to the Jews of Israel, the Jews from which Jesus comes, but they're almost so close that their differences burn more, right? That is who the Samaritans are. At this point in time when Jesus is living, the Samaritans have become sort of the icon of the wrong Jews. You cannot be around them, touch them, speak to them, associate with them, no. So that sets up the context of the story. A lawyer, you know, lawyers, a lawyer approaches Jesus and asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Pause. Jesus just asked this lawyer, what is in the Jewish law? And did you hear what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? Jesus will say the same thing. That is not original, all right? That is at the core a Jewish ideal that Jesus simply clarifies, right? That's really what happens here. So the lawyer says that and, he, and Jesus says to him, well, you've given the right answer. So just do that and you will live, right? Eternal life. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, right? 
lawyers never satisfied. He says, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells this story. And the story is often interpreted as a moral lesson, right? When you see someone who needs help, who is hurt in the ditch, so to speak, you stop and you help. That is what we are to do as followers of Christ. That is a good first level interpretation of the Good Samaritan story, but it can be so much better than that. So if we go deeper than just that morality of help someone in need, what we really get is that the true heart of this story is that God's grace is radically inclusive and open for everybody. And that anybody can bear God's grace out into the world. What Jesus is really saying is not just be good to your neighbor, but be godly to every person. And it's not a godness that only the good people can claim, but every person, even a Samaritan, can claim God and God's grace to other people. That is huge. Just think about who your Samaritan is. We all have them. We all have people who we just cannot believe is that person, right? Even they are available to be conduits of God's amazing grace. That is the deeper point of this story. If it simply stays at the moral level, then we get to be righteous and self-righteous and point fingers at those people who aren't as good as us, who did not help that person in need. That is not the point. The point is that be, we are godly and because we are godly, we can't help but help the person in need, right? It is an expression of the grace we have already received. Huh, good Samaritan in six minutes. <laughs> Not bad. Any questions about that? Because I do definitely want to talk about Martha and Mary. No? Sorry, that was a very quick on the Good Samaritan. It's good enough, we'll talk about it again. Lastly, Martha and Mary. This is a great little scene. Jesus comes into their house, and we, we assume Martha and Mary, we know they're sisters, we know they live in the same house, we know that they're friends of Jesus. It is very likely that Martha and Mary have known him for a long time, right? These are not new people, they're friends. And Jesus kind of comes over to hang out, right? And when he comes over to hang out, Martha sits at his feet to listen and to learn. Oh, I'm sorry. Mary sits at her feet. Sorry. Um, Mary sits at his feet to listen and learn. 
Martha then busies herself all around the house doing chores. Jesus is talking and teaching like he always does, and Mary's just sitting there. And can you imagine Martha, like, giving her the eyes, you know? Like, she's running around and bringing food and doing stuff and getting water for the feet and all the other things that you're supposed to do to be hospitable, and Mary is doing nothing. And so Martha just gets fed up, and she says, Jesus, look at her. Would you please tell her how to behave? What is happening in this moment when Jesus says, she's good. She is where she is supposed to be. For some people, I would say for most people, this is interpreted as potentially two different ways of being a good person, right? Or of being a Christ follower, right? Most people don't say, Martha is doing something wrong, right? Martha's just being active, whereas Mary is being contemplative, right? And both are good ways, good charisms or functions of being a good person in the world. Okay, that's fine. But if you know me at all by now, you know we can do better than that. And so if we go a step lower... What is really happening in this story is that Martha, sorry, Mary is assuming a role that she is not allowed to assume. When people sit at someone's feet to listen and to learn, what does that remind you of that we know about this period of time? It's not subservient. Or it is not like dog on, at someone's feet. When you sit at the feet of someone to learn, you are a student. Even more so, when you sit at the feet of a rabbi, you are trying to learn in order to be a rabbi. That is not okay for women. What she is really doing here is dynamic, right? You can approach this from multiple different uh, perspectives. It is not okay for a woman to do this, is probably the number one thing. But it's also potentially not okay for someone of her class to do this either. What Jesus says to Martha is that anyone can be my disciple. Anyone can be my disciple. And two, it is everyone's responsibility to learn so that they can be a teacher too. That is really what Jesus says here. It's not a dig at Martha, but it's a real affirmation of Mary. Mary is both, she is in her right place. Forget that she's a woman, says Jesus. Everybody, does not matter race, creed, privilege, or none, Everybody is welcome into this kingdom that Jesus is building. And not only is everyone welcome, right? Jesus has always got the teeth. It is also their responsibility to continue to extend the kingdom as well. So we start this chapter with the sending of the 70 to extend the kingdom. And we end with this little nugget of a story 
where Jesus says, it's not just the people you might expect, but every person is invited to be a, an arm of God in the world. Phew. So, any questions or thoughts before we go? Oh, come on, nothing. Hey, Madeline, yes. If you were Martha, you would be offended? I bet you would. Well, so let, let's follow that thread, okay? Let's chase that idea for a second. Martha might be offended, yes, but that's not even really the point, right? What Martha was doing was also valuable, right? She was not wasting her time necessarily. She was doing what was polite or respectable or expected. Any of those things, she was culturally in the right. And what Jesus says in not too many words is that she's really putting her priority in the wrong place. That's important for us because we live in a world that does set expectations, right? Our world expects that we behave in certain ways, right? We call that polite, right? There are polite ways to do everything and impolite ways. There are ways to be too gaudy. There are ways to be too silent or shy, right? We have put parameters around lots of stuff. And especially in the community where we are, there are ways to be successful. There are ways to express that success, not too showy, but enough, right? I mean, all of those things are worldly values that in and of themselves are not bad. But if they keep you from really assuming the role of Christ in the world, then they have gotten in your way. And so it's not that Martha's wrong, but it's that Mary is more right. And that Martha's priorities should always start with Christ. Doesn't mean you don't do the dishes at some point, right? But if you've got Jesus there, you go sit with Jesus, right? You can do the dishes in an hour when he's gone. Yeah. Madeline, I'm going to have to encourage you to reconcile with your sister. Um, no, so, so, so if Jesus is their friend, then perhaps what you're saying is that they're going to see him again, right? It's not like this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience of him in their house. I don't think that the physicality of the story is as important. Let me put it into something here. We are all busy, right? We all have plenty to do. Most of us do not sit around wondering what we could do now, right? And if you do, come tell me about that, okay? <laughs> so it's very easy for us to not prioritize what is less demanding of us. And so what is less demanding of us is often something like church, right? How often do you show up? Now, I know this does happen occasionally, but how often do you show up and someone says, it has been eight weeks since you have been here, and where have you been, right? 
you might have someone say, I haven't seen you in a while. And what that really means is like, I've missed you, right? Not meant to be guilty, but meant to say like, I love seeing you and I have missed seeing you, right? But most of the time, if you don't show up on a Sunday, nobody has called you that afternoon to say, where were you? If we don't do things like worship, because of the things make us busy, we have not put our priorities in the right place. That's perhaps the crux of this story. It does not mean we do nothing productive, but it means if our productive has become everything and the real spiritual rootedness of our life has taken a hit or has disappeared altogether, that is not the way to be. Does that feel a little better? I love Martha. Come on, don't. Okay, real quickly, because your hand went up with Madeline's. Yeah, there is a that's what you're supposed to do kind of thing. Well, you know, it's funny. Most people in this room are probably Martha. That's why we're here, right? We worked hard. Let me leave you with this. Every story that Luke tells should never just be by itself. If you read a story and you want to really flesh it out in a more deep way, grab another story, put them side by side, and see what the common, deeper meaning is. And I'll throw out that with Martha and Mary, perhaps you take the story of the workers in the vineyard, right? Who are come and start working at different points of time, and yet all get paid the same. And at the end, the owner says, have I done something wrong to you who came at the beginning of the day? I gave you exactly what I said I would. Those who came later, I want to give them the same thing. It's mine to give. And everybody gets the same if they showed up. I think if you take that kind of story and put it next to Martha and Mary, you may get a larger, more whole truth about what Jesus is really getting at. Thank you all. Happy New Year. See you next week.